Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. If somebody asks you, what was the essence of Shabbos? What would you say? Not working. Regenerate. Okay, yes. Family. Completion. Okay, great. These are all wonderful answers. Now I don't have to say anything. Okay. What we're going to start, what we're going to do tonight is two things. The first half of this talk is going to be just basically an introduction. And the second half, we'll get into the weeds. And you'll be able to tell the difference because we get into the weeds when there's going to be a page of Talmud up there. So as my former students know, that's where I, that's where I live. Until then, it'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. So we're going to start talking with the place that Jews start talking with, with the Ten Commandments. And this is just a pretty picture of the Ten Commandments. So, what, what, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments. The two sets of Ten Commandments, right? There's one in Exodus and one in Deuteronomy, are different. And they're different in some significant ways. Um, and we'll be talking about those significant ways. One of the ways, if we look at the Ten Commandments, the first commandments are the same in both places. Right? I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You have no other, no other gods before me. Idolatry. We're fine with that, um, uh, honoring your father and mother. We're fine with that. But then we get to Shabbat, right? And after you shall not utter, utter, utter the name of God for a vain thing, for God will not clear one who utters his name for a vain thing. So on the left is Exodus. Remember the Sabbath, to hall- remember the Sabbath day to hallow it. Six days you shall labor and do your work. On the right is Deuteronomy. Observe the Sabbath day to hallow it. Okay, so you have remember and observe. Two different things. Okay. Remember and so we have remember on, in Exodus, observe in Deuteronomy. Then we have basically the same thing. Six days shall you labor, do all your work on both sides. And then in the bottom, and we'll get back to that, we have two different reasons for keeping the Sabbath. Who knows what the different reasons are? See, I can keep that up there because nobody can see it. So there are two different reasons. One is Egypt, and the other is the creation of the world. Right? In Exodus, it says, in six, for in six days God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And in Deuteronomy, it's because you must remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And God, your God, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, God made the seventh day and hallowed it. Now, what's the connection between slavery and the Sabbath. Slaves can't rest. Being able to choose to rest is something that only free people can do. 
Okay, so that's what most of the commentators say. The reason for the fact that we have um, uh, the reason that the, the that's because of Egypt is because slaves can't rest, and therefore Sabbath is also reminding us that we were taken out of Egypt. Now, I want to spend a little moment here on remember and observe. So we're going to go to a midrash, right? Midrash. So we we jumped from. Torah, which is, let's say, somewhere in the 6th to 10th century before the Common Era, and we're jumping forward about a thousand years, um, a little more, to the Babylonian Talmud. As it is taught in a Tanaitic text, remember and observe were said at the same time. So we're not the first people who figured out that there were two different ways in which the, the Decalogue was talking about. The Sabbath... In Exodus, it says, remember. In Deuteronomy, it says, observe. We're said at the same time. That which the mouth cannot speak and which the ear cannot hear. In other words, they saw that there were two different Ten Commandments or two different versions of the Ten Commandments. And so the Midrash said, how could that be that there are two different versions of the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments was given. We all saw the movie, right? It was given at the same time. So the Midrash says, observe and Remember, Zachor and Shamor were said at the exact same time, something that only God can do. Okay, that's how we figure out the difference. That's answer number one. Rav Adabar Ava said, women are obligated in the sanctification of the Sabbath day as an obligation from the Torah, for the verse says, remember and observe. Remember, in rabbinic Judaism, women are not, are not obligated in all the commandments. Women are only obligated in positive, in, in commandments that are not bound by time. Um, so women are obligated in the sanctification of the Sabbath day as an obligation from the Torah. For the verse says, remember and observe. All who are included in observing, which is not a positive time-bound commandment, are also included in remembering. Since women are included in observing, they are included in remembering. Now, the only important thing for this is that remembering is a positive commandment. There is something there. It doesn't explain what it is there, what it means to remember. Is there some ritual associated with remembering? But it says, remember. So the question was, am I going to get to the fact that women are connected to Zachor in the sense of lighting candles now, what's interesting is actually that's, that's actually where I started when thinking about Shabbat. Um, so I'm jumping ahead, which is okay. Um, in the Mishnah of Shabbat, it never mentions the things that we associate with Shabbat. It never mentions Kiddush. It never mentions eating three meals. It never mentions having meals with your family. It's even questionable whether it mentions candles. There's a, there's a whole chapter that talks about oils, right? And that chapter is actually more famous because it's the only place in the Talmud where it talks about Hanukkah in the, in the Talmud. But it doesn't ever say that there is an obligation to light candles. It just says if you're lighting candles, these are the types of wicks and oils that you have to use. Now, why would they light candles? Why would they, they say these are the types of wicks and oils you have to use if there was no obligation to light Shabbat candles? So they could see, there you go, there's our Talmudist, right? Because they didn't have electricity. Right? So lighting candles originally, what, what is, is anybody, is anybody familiar with the phrase shalom bayit? Yeah. Okay, what does it mean? 
peace in the house. And what is it usually referred to? Getting along with each other. So the origin of the phrase Shlom Bayit is actually Shabbat candles. The Gemara says you have to light candles before Shabbat because of Shalom Bayit, meaning if you don't light candles, what do you have? Darkness. What happens in the darkness? You trip over each other. Right? You end up at 10 minutes into the meal and somebody poured the soup on somebody else's lap and you don't have a peaceful Shabbat anymore. Right? So all those, all those rituals which we associate with Shabbat, like lighting candles, making Kiddush, three meals, are not in the Mishnah. They're not in the earliest rabbinic layer of Shabbat. Okay, but we're going to go back here. So here the Babylonian Talmud tells us that there is some kind of positive obligation to remember, and we're not sure what that is yet. Here are the two uh, Decalogues, two Ten Commandments about, the, the, about Shabbat. So we have six days shall you labor and do your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath of God your God. You shall not do any work, you and your son and your daughter, your male and your female slave, your cattle and the stranger who is in your settlement. Basically the same thing in Deuteronomy, except it adds a couple of folks. But here is the interesting thing. It says, the, the, the thing that, that it says most often is labor and work. And especially work. Work, how do you say work in, in biblical Hebrew? Anybody remember? Sheshet yamim tavod basita kol milachtecha. Milacha is work, but it's also, so milacha, we will find out, is not only work, but it's any kind of activity or labor. So work, we'll see in a minute when we get to the Mishnah, which is in like a second, that it doesn't only refer to schlepping stuff or building stuff, but it can refer to stuff that we wouldn't even think of as being work in the sense of expending effort. So therefore, we don't just use the term work. We use the term work or activity or labor. And we find out, we see that this, these are the main classes of activity, forbidden activity, are 40 save one. 39 classes of activity that are forbidden on Shabbat. Now this is Mishnah. When was Mishnah written? Okay, let's uh, have 300, Okay, it's the beginning of the fourth century in Eretz Yisrael. It was the last, it was almost the last text written in Hebrew in the land of Israel, right before contemporary times, before modern times. Okay, so here, this is Mishnah Shabbat. This Mishnah is the second Mishnah in the seventh chapter of Shabbat. That is important, will be important later. So just keep in the back of your mind. Right, today is Pi Day. That has nothing to do with anything. But this is Mishnah Shabbat 7-2. The main classes of activity are 40 save 1, which is how many? Excellent. All right. We're moving. See, Pi Day. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating, or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making loops, weaving threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and taking ought out from one domain to another. These are the main classes of activity. So there you have stuff from 
building to lighting a fire to writing two letters. So it's not all work. So you can write one letter? You are allowed to write one letter, yes. Somebody always has to ask, right? <laughs> right? So these are the classes of milacha or activity that are forbidden on Shabbat. Now, the question comes up before we go into what, what is this all about is where did they get this? Right? What is the notion? So let's look back for a minute and see what is forbidden in Torah. Right? We saw that in the Ten Commandments, it says it's forbidden to do your labor. Six days a week, you should work and do all your activity or labor. And on the seventh day is, this, is for God. You rest and you don't do any labor. So what do we have in the Torah about that is, we know is forbidden? So six days shall you labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And here it adds something, even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. So apparently plowing and harvesting is forbidden. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Remember that everyone is to stay where they are. No one is to go out. So the second thing we have is you're not allowed to go outside on Shabbat. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Finally, in the Torah, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, a story, because you always need a good story. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Anybody remember what happened to him? He was killed, right? So, and God, right, Moses didn't remember, so Moses took him and asked God, and God said, the man must die, the whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So apparently, gathering wood is what? Forbidden, not a good thing to do. Okay, and finally, we have one extra thing in Jeremiah. Be careful, the bolded letters, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath. So, we have a list, an exhaustive list, of five things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work, light a fire, go out, carry a load, and you have to remember the Sabbath day to hallow it. Yes? Excellent question. Right? That's a great question. They apparently didn't because they didn't go out. Right? We'll get back to that. Hold on to that question. That's actually going to be the whole end of the class. Because, you know, your rabbis here, I don't want to ever say, don't go to shul. <laughs> okay. So, so we're back here, right? We had, these are the only five things that we found that are forbidden. And yet, we come back here, and again, we have 40 save one classes of activity. So we still haven't figured out where they get this 39. Okay. Okay, one more shot. Exodus 35, this is in the middle, this is actually where we are, since you go to shul every Shabbos. This is where we are in the, re in the Torah portion, right? Truman, Saveh, we're at the end of the book of Exodus, which is all about building the, building the, the tabernacle. In the middle of building the tabernacle, Exodus 35 says, and Moses gathered the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do for six days work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So in the middle, before is tabernacle, after is tabernacle, and right in the middle 
is Shabbat. So some of the rabbis said, why is Shabbat placed in there? So that we shouldn't, so that we should know that the activities that we did to build a tabernacle are not allowed to be done on the Sabbath. And the Talmud says it pretty straightforwardly as it taught in a Tanaitic text. One is only held culpable on Shabbat for an activity which is analogous to an activity that was done in the tabernacle. So here we have one theory. The things that are forbidden on Shabbat are the things that were forbidden in the tabernacle. They planted, so you are not to plant. They reaped, so you are not to reap. They raised the beams from the ground to the carriage, so you are not to bring objects in from the public domain to the private domain. They lowered the beams from the carriage to the ground, so too you are not to bring objects from a private domain to the public domain. They passed the beams from carriage to carriage, so too you are not to pass objects from one private domain to another private domain. Now the problem with that is that it seems to be reverse engineering. It seems to be that they had this list of stuff, and then they figured out which of these things they could do were done in the tabernacle. So, for example, when they talk about bishul, or cooking, they talk about the fact that in the temple you had to make dyes. So they had to, the way you make dyes, apparently, is at the end you have to boil them. Really? That's where you get the, 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 the prohibition against cooking? But let's take a look, actually. I think there's a simpler explanation. We take a look at back at Mishnah Shabbat, and it says, if we divide up these 40, save one, these 39 classes of forbidden activity into six different categories, we'll see, actually, that something interesting. We start out, one is sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, which is what? Baking bread. Right? All the activities that you need to bake bread. Right? From the beginning, from planting crops all the way till you get to the bread. Then the second class is shearing, shearing wool, washing or beating it, spinning, weaving, making loops, weaving threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches is what? There you go, making clothes. And the third, hunting a gazelle. Now this, is a, this one is interesting because it takes a turn. Hunting a gazelle, where would we think that's going? Food, but hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it. Now here's where the turn is. Curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order not to write, in order to write two letters, writing, right? Preparing a parchment for a safer Torah, right? But that all kind of writing was done on parchment. So initially, so we have basically the activities that go into the most common quotidian daily activities are forbidden. How did you get 39? Now, this is also important because there's 40 minus 1. 40 is one of those numbers, right? 40 days on Sinai, 40 years in the desert. If you read the book of Judges, it's always 40 years, and then there were 40 years of peace. 40 is one of those numbers. So they had, and if you actually, this is a little more technical, the 40 in the beginning and the 40 in the end, the fact that the, the first line, main class of activity of 40, say 1, and these main classes of activity, 40 save 1, are identical, is a scribal technique to show that something here in the middle was added on. So originally, probably, they just had the notion that there are 40 types of work that were forbidden. And then somebody, of course, because we're rabbis, said, which 40? And then they decided that the 40 were probably those things that have to do with daily life, right? Because God 
gave us manna in the wilderness. Why? So that we wouldn't have to do that on the Sabbath. Right? So those kind of things distinguishing the Sabbath from the week is that we don't do things to bake bread. We don't do things to make clothes. We don't do things that have to do with writing. And then the end, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and taking, one, uh, taking out something from one domain into another are just kind of the, the four and five building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, putting out a fire, lighting a fire is in the Torah. So you can't get around it, or you have to have that. Building is actual work, right? So building a, a house and taking down a house. Striking with a hammer, striking with a hammer is actually this unique activity, which means when a carpenter finishes a job, he'll hit it one last time with a hammer. That's what it means. So it's like a metaphor for finishing an activity. And then finally, um, taking out something from one domain into another, which is an interesting thing, right? That's we saw in Jeremiah. You're not allowed to bring things from the from into the, the the city or out of the city. And we'll spend a little bit of time, a little bit of time more on that later. But that's that's that kind of uh, anchors the whole thing. Yeah, a gazelle means animal. It's not only a gazelle, as as uh, you know, as it says, in, as Brian said in Monty Python, I don't mean only a gazelle. I mean any sort of domestic animals. So now, this up till here was the introduction, right? So, um, and, and when it says hunting a gazelle, it actually does mean any sort of hunting, any sort of, any sort of animal, um, or slaughtering any sort of animal on, that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. So this up till here is the introduction, and now we're going to get serious. Okay, so this is a page of Talmud. For those of you who, who have never come in, who have never met a page of Talmud, say hello, Talmud. So this, in the middle, is the Talmud written in Aramaic, um, edited somewhere around the 7th or 8th century before the Common Era. It's one of the two Talmuds. It's the Babylonian Talmud, edited in Babylonia, which even at that time was no longer Babylonia, but was Sasanian Persia. It's now Iraq, mainly. Um, this is Mishnah. That just turns out that way. The Talmud is a commentary on Mishnah, though... The commentary in this Mishnah is on the next page. And we'll get to some of that also. So we're going to take a look at, so this is the seventh chapter, um, the first Mishnah. The list of the activities, right, were, the list of the activities were Mishnah Shabbat 7-2. We're now going to look at Mishnah Shabbat 7-1. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the Mishnah. And here it is. A great general rule. Klal Gadol of Shabbat. They said a great general rule about Shabbat. Whosoever, forgetful of the essence of the Sabbath, committed many acts of work on many Sabbaths, is liable only to one sin offering. Okay, so if anybody forgot the essence of the Shabbat, right, and that phrase is the phrase that we're going to, of course, look into. Anybody forgot the essence of Shabbat, committed many acts of work on many Sabbaths, it's liable only to one sin offering because he forgot one thing. He forgot the essence of Shabbat. So that's why he has to bring a sin offering. But if mindful of the essence of Shabbat, but if he remembered the essence of Shabbat, yet committed many acts of work on many Sabbaths, he is liable for every Sabbath, which he profaned because he was transgressing the essence of Shabbat every time he did. Okay, so the question is, what is the essence of Shabbat? Ikar Shabbat in Hebrew. So we're going to do 
what has been done for centuries, we're going to ask Rashi. Rashi is the guy who's always on the inner margin of the Talmud. Rashi is a, an acronym for Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki, northern French, died in 1105, just before the Second Crusades. Um, Kuntra, his name is, his nickname is Kuntras, which might mean pad, that he wrote his commentaries on a pad, and it might be from the Latin commentarius, which means the commentator. Because Rashi, for years, was the most famous commentator in his lifetime. This is back in 1105, a couple of years before there were iPhones and email. In his lifetime, his commentary went throughout the known Jewish world. Went to France, it went to Egypt, it went to North Africa. So it was a very popular commentary, and he revolutionized the study of Talmud, actually allowing everybody to study Talmud, as opposed to it being merely an academic study. Okay, so Rashi has a comment on this, uh, on this Mishnah, right? And that's Rashi's, if you, take, if you could see that, this is called Rashi's script. There's one thing we know about Rashi's script is that Rashi didn't write in Rashi's script. But it's called Rashi's script so that it looks different than the square script in the middle of the page. And it's probably, a, it's one of the scribal scripts. You can tell it is a, it's like a cursive. It's much more round, so if you're writing fast, it's, it, it goes faster, so there are letters around it. And then at a certain time, when they started printing the Talmud, they chose some form of that kind of cursive to print the commentaries on the side to push them, to set them off from the square letters in the beginning. That's all irrelevant to where we're going to go now, which is here. Rashi says, Ikar Shabbat, one who knows the essence of Shabbat, Sheyesh Shabbat Torah v'nesru ba'amalachot, that there is Shabbat in the Torah and activities were forbidden on the Shabbat. So what does it mean to know the essence of Shabbat? It doesn't mean Shamor or Zachor, right? What does it mean? It means that to know that there are, is Shabbat in the Torah and that activities were forbidden on the Shabbat. That's all it means. Now that's a little ambiguous. Right? What exactly does that mean? I mean, do you have to know all 39 of the forbidden activities? Do you have to know one of them? So these are the very questions which trouble the mind of the Talmud. So we move ahead two pages, or a page and a half, and we take a look at this part of the, the, the um, discussion, which is called a sugya in Aramaic, this part of the discussion. It is taught in the Mishnah. Now, this refers to Mishnah Shabbat 7.2. It's taught in the Mishnah, the main classes of forbidden activity of 40 save 1. Familiar. A discussion ensued. Why is there a need for the number 39? Right? We're all smart people. We could all count up to 39. You just list the activities and we'll figure out that it's 39. Why did it have to say the number? Rabbi Yochanan said, so that if one performed all the forbidden activities in one act of forgetting, one would be accountable for each and every one. So it says 39, so that you remember, so that you, we learn that if somebody in one act of forgetting forgot all the, all, all the activities of Shabbat, then that person has to bring 39 different sacrifices. A sacrifice for each one. because, And we learn that from the fact that it lists that there are 39 activities, so that we wouldn't forget any one of them. Each one is distinct. Now, the Talmud asks the question, how is this possible? And so the Talmud says, this is impossible to forget all 39 activities. Why? 
if one knew it was Shabbat but forgot the forbidden activities. So this is how it's possible that one knew that it was Shabbat but forgot the forbidden activities. Okay, Rashi, because things are too simple. Okay, we're going to take a Rashi. You can see it's a long Rashi, so therefore Rashi has something to say. Usually Rashi is just one line. can give you a definition, help you along. Here Rashi is troubled. How is this possible that one is accountable? And what does it mean that one is accountable if one has forgotten all the, all the activities? It is only possible when one knows that it is Shabbat and does not know that these activities, activities are forbidden. Okay, so one knows it is Shabbat, but does not know that all the activities are forbidden, all the 39. For if the case was that one knew that these activities, activities were forbidden, but did not know it was Shabbat, that is, one knew that they were forbidden on Shabbat, but forgot that today is Shabbat, behold, it teaches in the Mishnah that that one is liable only to one sin offering for every Shabbat, right? We said that's if somebody forgets that it's Shabbat. So if somebody, in the case that somebody knew that all these activities were forbidden, but you didn't know this was Shabbat, I woke up, thought it was Thursday, went out and do what I do every Thursday. I plowed, I harvested, I, I seeded, I burned, I wrote, you know, all the things you do on a regular day. But I just, didn't, I just forgot it was Shabbat. So, but in that case, I only be liable for one sin offering because I forgot it was Shabbat. Knowing that it is Shabbat can only occur, knowing, now this is the important part of Rashi, so everybody pay attention, everybody lean forward a little bit. Knowing that it is Shabbat can only occur if he knows at least one of the laws. The only way to know it's Shabbat is if you know one of the laws, one of the forbidden activities. For if one does not know even one of them, Shabbat is not differentiated for him from the other days. And therefore, if he forgot all the laws, it is not possible to know that it is Shabbat. Okay, let's take that, let's look at that a little closer. Knowing that it is Shabbat can only occur if he knows at least one of the laws. For if one does not know even one of the laws, Shabbat is not differentiated from him from the other days, and therefore if he forgot all the laws, if he forgot all the activities, it is not possible to know that it is Shabbat. So this is, so what is Rashi saying here? What is the essence of Shabbat? So the essence of Shabbat is, is the do not do, right? And that, and, knowing the things that are forbidden allows you to distinguish Shabbat from the rest of the week. Not knowing any of the prohibitions means that it's not Shabbos. So Shabbos is that which comes after one knows the things that are forbidden. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So what does one do on Shabbos? Nothing. Right? So what does that mean? In other words, knowing Shabbos doesn't mean knowing you have to make Kiddush. It doesn't mean knowing you have to light candles. It doesn't mean knowing you have to pray. It means knowing that there are 39 categories of forbidden labor. Okay, you remember not to do. Okay, good. So that's possible that you're remembering Shamor, you're remembering Zahor, you're remembering not to do. But what are you doing? Nothing. And why? 
Because when God created the world a long time ago, the heaven and the earth were finished in all their array. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed, sorry about the, the, the male gendered language. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because on it God ceased from all the work of creation that God had done, such is the story of heaven and the earth, when they were created. So what is the culmination of creation? God stopped working. Right? God ceased the malacha. Right? And God was shovet, meaning God rested from all malacha. He hit that hammer, right? And, but before Shabbos he did it. Right? He finished by The heaven and the earth were finished. So he hit the hammer before Shabbos, and then God ceased from all work. So what is it that we're doing when we do nothing on Shabbos? We're being like God. The point of Shabbos is Shabbat Vayinafash, is to, is to be like God, to do nothing to breathe. Now, what does that mean in the world? How do we put that out in the world? So that's where we get back to the question of going out and going to shul. Not that we go to shul, but rather, I'm sorry, this, yes. So we go back. So this is where he said that the bottom, the last activity is actually the anchoring activity. That taking, taking out ought from one domain into another. It is forbidden to move something from one domain into another. What does that mean? That's, this is the discussion, now we're in chapter seven, this is the discussion that starts the Talmud of Shabbat. So chapter one, this is in the Tosefta, which is a companion volume to the Mishnah, and there it's more explicit. There are four domains in respect to the Sabbath. Private ground, public ground, Carmelite, a place of non-liability. A Carmelite is, now the bottom two, Carmelite in a place of non-liability, C and D, are places which are neither public nor private. So a Carmelite is a public place which is not public, and a place of non-liability is a private place which is not private. So an example of a Carmelite is a, uh, a, an unplowed field. So it's public, but people don't walk through it because it's really hard to walk through it. Makom Ptur, a place of non-liability, is, is the porch outside of a store. So it looks like it's private, but anybody's allowed to walk there because people want people to go into the store. So these are the four domains. Now, what is private ground? A trench, ten handbreadths deep and four wide, and likewise a wall, ten handbreadths high and four broad. That is absolute public ground. What is public ground? A high road, a great public square, and an open alleys. This is absolute public ground. Now, here's the important point. One may not carry out from this private to this public ground, nor carry in from this public to this private ground. If one does carry out or in unwitting, he's liable for a sin offering. And if deliberately, he is punished by karate or stone. So what did we just set up? No, we didn't set up the Erev yet. If we had an Erev, we would be, then we could do all this stuff, Right? This sets, but what we set up is the map of Shabbat. So if you're in private, if you're inside, you can do whatever you want, right? You can carry stuff, you can take, I mean, you can't do anything you want. You can carry stuff inside your house. You can take a book from one room to the next. You can sit there and read the book and then bring it back to the other room. You can take the chalant and take it from the kitchen and put it on the table. 
But if the chalent is bad and you want to take it out to the garbage and you walk outside with the chalent, then what happens? You get killed. You get stoned. Now, there are all kinds of, the important point of this is not so that we get to kill people. The important point of this is that this is a map of Shabbat, which means that in your head, you know that you can't take something from inside your house to outside the house. But once you know that, then you can do whatever you want. Aside from that, right? You could go, if you go for a walk on Shabbat, you are walking in Shabbat. If you, as long as you're not carrying anything, as long as you are, as long as you have already set up the boundaries. So think of it like a sukkah, right? If you're in as anything you do in a sukkah on Sukkot, whether it's sleeping or eating or reading or watching TV, is Sukkot, is a sukkah activity, right? That is fulfilling the commandment of living in Sukkot. The same thing is true on Shabbat. Anything you do on Shabbat, as long as you do not go outside the boundaries of the 39 forbidden activities, that as long as you do not violate the map of Shabbat, everything you do on Shabbat is a Shabbat activity. Walking, talking, reading, sleeping, having sex, eating, all those things are Shabbat activities, which means what? Once we have this boundary, your world is Shabbat. So you could be walking down the street with your neighbor, Joe, who's not Jewish, and having a nice conversation with him, and you're in Shabbat, and he's not. But that conversation for you is part of Shabbat, because you've already set up the boundaries around Shabbat, so that all you're doing is a Shabbat activity. And this is what deep Shabbos is. What deep Shabbos is, is that we are like God, in that we don't do anything. We've finished doing. We've set up our world so that we don't have to do anything anymore today. Once we don't have to do anything, once we don't do the things that we're not supposed to do, things which create, things which do stuff to the world or do stuff in the world, then everything we do is Shabbat. There you go. Questions, comments? Yeah. No, no. Okay. Okay. No problem. So these things are the things that are forbidden on Shabbat. Once we know that they're forbidden, right? They're forbidden, like you said. That's what happens just before Shabbat. Now, Shabbat, in this way, Shabbat is a unique ritual. Most rituals, according to ritual experts, most rituals have, most ritual days, have a beginning ritual and an ending ritual. Shabbat doesn't. Nowadays, now you're going to say, oh, that's not true. What about Kiddush? What about candlelight? That's later. In its essence, Shabbat's opening ritual, as it were, is stopping to do everything. Once you stop doing anything. Now, here's the interesting thing. There is an opposite to Shabbat. And it makes perfect sense. What is Shabbat's opposite in Judaism? Work is, is the opposite of what you don't do on Shabbat. But what is the opposite ritual of Shabbat? I think it's not going to come simple, but we mentioned it. The temple. 
The temple is all work. And the temple, the work in the temple of sacrificing, slaughtering, burning, is allowed to be done on Shabbat. So the temple is a realm which is different than Shabbat. So it's actually, now when we go back, remember we said that the reason, the way that they got the 39 labors was by this juxtaposition of the the Shabbat prohibition in the middle of Exodus where they were talking about tabernacle. That's not coincidental for the rabbis. The rabbis took that and saw those two as opposites. The temple is all activity. So for example, from the, from the first activity in the morning, somebody is appointed to open the gates of the temple. That's a service. Somebody does the house cleaning. Somebody cleans the ashes out of the, off the altar. That's a service. Somebody, everything is a service. From the morning, and then the last service of the day is locking up the gates. Right? Every single thing is done, is prescribed. There is no... There is nothing that is done in the temple that is not prescribed. Not only that, it's prescribed how you walk. When the temple, when the, high, when the priest slaughters an animal, so the priest, there are things that, a bunch of things that has to be, have to be done after you slaughter the animal. You have to take the blood in, uh, in the, what's called the, the kina, in the, the vessel for the blood. Somebody has to keep stirring it so it doesn't coagulate. The priest then, at a certain point, has to take the blood over to the, over to the altar and pour some of it, splash some of it on the altar. There's an exact path that the priest has to walk to do that. Everything is prescribed down to the last thing, as opposed to Shabbat, where nothing is prescribed. But literally, nothing is prescribed. What you have to do is nothing. Right? So temple and Shabbat are, are, are polar opposites in the rabbinic world. Not necessarily in, in the biblical world, but in the rabbinic world, temple and Shabbat are polar opposites. Now, what else happens? What's the other central component or central attribute of temple? What? I can't hear you. Okay, the ark is in the temple, right in the center of the temple, but what is? what do you need to have the temple? You need people. People are nice. What, do you, what else do you need? Could you put the temple any place? No. The temple has to be in one place. The, in the Bible it says, God says over and over again, when I, you know, you will make me a temple and I will dwell amongst you. But it says, in the place where I will choose. You can't have the temple any place. And actually, the Mishnah says there are 10 levels of holiness in the world. And the Ark is the whole, in the Holy of Holies is the holiest place in the world. And then it goes down from there. It goes down to the, the priestly quarter, to the Levites quarter, the Israelites quarter, the women's quarter, the uh, Temple Mount, Jerusalem, the rest of Israel, and then the rest of the world. So the temple needs that you can't, if you, so therefore, for the Israelites to go into exile, for the Jews to go into exile, what had to happen? The temple had to be destroyed. Once the temple was destroyed, it actually didn't make a difference where the Jews were physically because that center was destroyed. And the Midrash says, interestingly, when the temple was destroyed, the first thing went into exile was God, the Shekhinah, went into exile with the Jews. There are 10 steps of going into exile. Now, if we think, on the other hand, Shabbat, what does Shabbat need to be Shabbat? Again, nothing. Right? So Shabbat is portable in the way the temple isn't. 
Shabbat. So when, when you know, there's a, a famous uh, proverb probably from the 10th century that says that more than the Jews preserve Shabbat, Shabbat preserved the Jews. Why? Because there's something that's movable. You could live in Shabbat if you're in Poland. You can live in Shabbat if you're in Istanbul. You can live in Shabbat if you're in, in Spain. You can live in Shabbat in Egypt because that map is in your head. Right? That map of Shabbat is in your head. Once you stop doing things on Friday night or Friday before night, you're in Shabbat. And it doesn't make a difference where you're living. It also doesn't make a difference if you're in shul or not. Now, it's nice to go to shul. Right? It's nice to see people, have kiddush, especially have kiddush. But it's nice to, but you could actually be at home and it's Shabbat also. Right? All these other things that we put on it. Now, there's, there's actually a whole chapter in, there's you know, five pages in, later chapter in Shabbat, which is all about a chapter I like to call, Yay Shabbos, right? which seems to be a marketing tool for Shabbos. At a certain point, people, rabbis probably thought that people got bored with the fact that all you do is do nothing, do nothing. So they said, well, if you eat three meals, then you get a uh, reward in this world and the next world. Anybody who has three meals, their reward is, is endless. And all these kind of things to say, yay, Shabbos. It was probably some kind of a marketing scheme, and they had a problem then. And, and it's not clear exactly why it happened. I have some theories. Um, but because basically at heart, Shabbos is about not doing anything. But what's really important is that the reason why is why are we not doing anything? Because we are performing God. Right? That's what's at the center of this. We are performing God. And God is not in a place. Right? Temple was a compromise that God made with us after the golden calf. God realized that we couldn't live in Shabbos. Right? God realized that we couldn't live with a God who was not seen or not known and there was no place to contact to be with God. So God said, all right, you know what? Let's not do this golden calf stuff. Too many people get killed. Not good. Let's build a Let's build a temple. Let's build a tabernacle. And I will come down and I'll live between the cherubs. And every year on Yom Kippur, the high priest will come in and he'll clean out the, clean out the joint and send out the sins and, and everything will be okay. Now that went fine for a long time until the temple was destroyed because of all kinds of things. But at the same time, God, while telling us to build the tabernacle, the Bible says, keep Shabbos. Because once the tabernacle is destroyed, once the temple is destroyed, you still have Shabbos. And actually, what to be like God, to be like the God of creation, is Shabbos, is to do nothing. Yes? 39 prohibitions to work. The no, no, these are, the 39 prohibitions is the prohibition to work. These are all called melacha. These are all called labor. That's why work is not a good translation. These are all forbidden activities. You're not allowed to carry from, from a private domain to a public domain. Exactly. So, and so I know in the Orthodox world, if a student is no pizza, I mean, there's no um, error, that if somebody wanted to carry a key to go, you know, the key to their house, they go to school or take a walk and but they don't carry the key, but they make it into a pie clip, so it's... Um, so it, yeah. How does that, you know... So here we're talking about, so, so um, now we're talking about the history of halacha. Right? Now, 
One thing we have to say, so Eruv. Does everybody know what an Eruv is? Okay, there are actually three kinds of Eruv, but the Eruv that everybody knows about is the Eruv, which is like a make-believe wall. Because if you have a wall, people here have, been to, have heard of Jerusalem, right? So you're allowed to carry in Jerusalem on Shabbos because there's a wall around Jerusalem. So it's considered, the whole thing is considered kind of a private domain, right? If you're on an island and you can see both sides of the island, you can see the water on both sides, you're allowed to carry on Shabbos because that's considered like you, you're on a private, if you're on a mountaintop, right? And with steep sides, and this is actually of course, a halachic algorithm for how steep the sides have to be. But if you're on a mountaintop with steep sides and you can see both sides, you don't need an Arab on Shabbos, right? Because you're, you're considered, that's considered like as if you're in a private domain. So now, the interesting thing is that the Eruv, that fake wall around the city, and I come from Los Angeles, which has the largest Eruv on the planet, uses two freeways and then a whole bunch of string, a whole bunch of wire to make the Eruv. Everybody thinks, thinks Eruv and thinks that that's the biggest loophole. Why would you do that? I'd either do it or not. What's fascinating is that Eruvin, the tractate that discusses Eruv, is the tractate after Shabbat. It's in Mishnah. So it's not a later edition. It was the same people who decided that these are the 39 categories of activity and the same people who said that you're not allowed to take something from one domain into another are the same exact people who said that if you have an Eruv, you're allowed to. And so it's not something that came later that we didn't want to do the rabbinical. Now, Why? Because on Shabbos, you're supposed to rest, but you're not supposed to suffer. Right? Remember the whole thing with candles and Shalom Bayit? You're not supposed to, there's not supposed to. Now, to be honest, there were sects of Jews at various times who did think that you're supposed to suffer in Shabbos. So there are the, the, the German pietists, the Hasidic Ashkenaz in the 12th and 13th century, who fasted on Shabbos, who did all kinds of other practices on Shabbos, because why? It actually makes a lot of sense. What's the thing that's written about Shabbat in the Bible more than anything else? Not, nothing that we saw here. Take a guess. Set it apart, one would think, but no. Um, anybody? You will die. That's what it says. That's the most common thing that it says in the Bible about Shabbat. If you do this, you will die. Right? If you do, so the Hasidic, so some people, so it's actually surprising that Shabbat is a fun day. It's actually surprising that Shabbos is like a family day and you have meals and you have people over and you have Kiddush and you go to shul and you enjoy yourself. So there are some folks, like the German pietists, and actually even today there are some groups, who treat Shabbat as a fearful day. Because what you're worried about is anything you do, you could die. And even though we don't have a court and we don't have stoning, we don't have... So still, if you do some, if you transgress a law for which you should die... That's a serious bad mark on your soul, right? Even if you don't get killed for it. So the, the question is not why is Shabbos the way it is. The question is why isn't Shabbos uh, this fearful, awful day? But rather Shabbos is a great day. And that might have to do something with that PR campaign of Yeh Shabbos. At a certain point they say, hey, this is something great. We like this. And actually, we know that Jews were known for Shabbos. There are lots of different texts that we have from late antiquity where they talk about Jews as those who don't work on the seventh day. We know actually Jews, to some, some Jews were, were fanatics and they didn't fight on the seventh day. So they, if they were attacked in the book of Maccabees, unclear how, what the historical accuracy of is it, but in the book of Maccabees it says that they were attacked and they had to have a convocation to figure out whether or not they could defend themselves on the Sabbath. 
So the Jews were those who didn't work on the Sabbath, and that was kind of our thing. Right? That's what we were known for. At a certain point, we decided to make that into a fun thing instead of like just a not fun thing. But at the base of it again is still that Shabbat Vinafash, is that deep Shabbos is not doing anything because we are being God on Shabbos. Kulu Hashemayim Baritz it doesn't say, and God completed the heaven and the earth and all of it, but rather the heaven and the earth were finished. Right? And that is the way to understand the next verse. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing. So in other words, by the seventh day, that work was finished. As we see in the previous verse, it says that everything was done. The heaven and the earth were finished in all their array. So there was nothing left to do. So therefore, when it says, means that God finished, meaning that it was already done. Right? And therefore, therefore, God rested from all the work that he was doing. So there's actually, it's, this is actually the same thing as it says in Exodus, that God did not do anything, and God rested. It's just a, a question of the grammar there. The Bible does that a lot. But it says, so the first one, it says, the earth, heaven and the earth were finished in all their array. And then it talks about God, that God was also done. So yes, and, and there is, it's actually there's duplicated in Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's duplicated, there's a lot of duplication. So um, I would say the following. So Heschel, that's, I mean, there's, a, there's an idea which is attributed to Abraham Joshua Heschel that Shabbat is a castle in time, right, rather than a castle in place. So I would say two things. One um, is that Heschel was wrong, and the second is that Heschel was right. right? So in describing the traditional Shabbat, the, the classical Shabbat, Shabbat is not a castle in time. Shabbat is very much about space. And that's what, well, it's very much about space. It's about the spaces where you can go and the spaces where you can't go. And once you have that space, then you can do anything you want, right? In, once you've already bounded yourself. So the rabbis then we have the Shabbat, which is about time, right? That it starts on sundown on Friday and it finishes when the stars come out on, after Shabbat. Those are the borders for this Shabbat space. Now, the Shabbat space, the reason I, I, I say it's space, it's more than that. The mission of Shabbat has, if not the greatest, one of the greatest vocabularies of things in all of Mishnah. In saying you're not allowed to do stuff, you're not allowed to use stuff, and you're not allowed to accomplish activities, it talks, it goes through a whole catalog of things, of measurements, which are in material terms. And just like here, the, the 39 activities are things that you do in the world. So the things that you stop doing Right, are material things, and they're defined by the material. So Shabbat, like Rashi said, right, the way that you distinguish between Shabbat and the week is by knowing the things that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Now, knowing the things, that, what are those things you're not allowed to do? Those are physical things. Those are activities that you're not allowed to do. Once you stop that, then you have this space. You are in the space of Shabbat, wherein everything is Shabbat. So we don't need, so the rabbis, I think, at least initially, 
didn't think that they needed to prescribe the spiritual activity of Shabbat because the spiritual activity of Shabbat was just that, the nothingness that was left from not doing. Now, of course, it's not a, speci- a unique Shabbat activity that we pray three times a day. We have a special prayer. We, have, we pray in a special way on Shabbat, but we have three prayers a day. And then they added on three meals to go with the three prayers. And then it became a whole thing. But if we go back to the, the basic Shabbat, peak Shabbos is the not doing anything between sundown on Friday and, and, and the stars coming out on Shabbat, on, on, at the end of Shabbat. And that is peak Shabbos, right? That's the doing nothing, which is deep Shabbos. So that's why Heschel is, of course, deeply right. But at the same time, he was not describing the Shabbos. He was describing, Heschel was living in a time and describing why all the edifices that we build is pointing us in the wrong way. That's a whole other agenda. Don't start Shabbos, don't attach Shabbat to its symbols. So the way to start doing that is not by saying, oh, you know what, I want to start keeping Shabbos, therefore I'm going to light candles. Or therefore I'm going to make Kiddush. But rather, say, I'm going to spend a portion of this time not engaging in any productive labor. I'm going to read, I'm going to sleep, I'm going to take a walk. Because once... We especially, I think especially Americans, but not only, we're consumer consumer culture. So we understand getting really nice Shabbos candles, getting a really nice Kiddush cup, making Kiddush, making, and, and, then, and, that's, and then we did something, and then it's over. What we have to practice is the not doing something, right? And so start slowly, right? It's not, as, as, as Rabbi Shmuley said, it's not easy to not do something, especially nowadays. So unplug. One job is where you don't look at your phone. Right? I have a teenage boy. This is not easy. Right? Right? One job is where you don't look at your phone, where you don't you know, get the CNN updates every five minutes. One job is where you just start with, small th- start with the small things. Start with you know, one Friday night where you do this. So it's not an activity, but it has to be not an activity. That's the important thing, right? And then fill it with whatever you want. Once you, here's the thing. I, so I, I, it was an interesting thing. I, I'm not, I don't usually operate in spiritual counselor mode. So I thank you for the opportunity. But I was asked, I, uh, there's a, a, this organization that I'm on the board of that Shmuley mentioned, um, the Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice is an interfaith, organiza- interfaith social justice organization. They have a young religious leaders fellowship in the summer where religious leaders from different faith traditions come together and they work on campaigns and they learn also about what it means to have faith-rooted social justice organizing. So they ask different people who are involved in the organization to talk to these organizers about what they do to help sustain themselves, right? To keep themselves going so that they don't burn out. What spiritual practice do they have? So they asked me if I would come one Friday afternoon. Every Friday afternoon they have their end of week um, and they had their end of week get together where they go over what they did during the week. And they, at that point, they have somebody come in who will explain their spiritual practice from their tradition. They asked me to do it. And at first they thought, I don't know. What do I do? Right? I don't have, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. I'm not a spiritual person. I, you know, I can meditate every once in a while, but I'm not. 
And then I realized my spiritual practice was Shabbos. Right? Once a week, whereas every morning I get up, as soon as I get up, I hit the iPhone, I see what's on the news, I get on Twitter, I check my email. And on Shabbos, I don't. And I realize that this is, and so what happens instead is that here's the thing about nothing. Nothing is filled, but nothing gets filled with conversations. Nothing gets filled with reading. Right? Nothing, that's space, and that's a Shabbos space. And so it becomes something beautiful. But the practice is also taking yourself out of the world, especially people who are, as you said, really, really involved in the world or always moving forward in accomplishment. I remember... It was a great exchange. Michael Lerner, who's the editor of Tikkun, um, who has a, a, you know, lots of people love him, lots of people hate him, like everybody else who's really involved in the world. He was on uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Who you know the show on NPR? And he had just written a book, he just written his book called Jewish Renewal. It was about his Jewish practice. And Terry Gross said to him, asked the following question about seven different ways. It's Friday afternoon, and you have a project to accomplish, and it's just about sundown. What do you do? And Lerner said, I go home. He said, no, you have a deadline from your publisher, and you have to finish the chapter. What do you do? And he said, I go home. Right? And she just couldn't get it. It's that move. It's like, really? You go home? Why? Because it's Shabbos. Right? And if you, this is the thing of a spiritual practice, is that if you don't, if you only do it every once in a while, it's as if you didn't do it. I mean, that one time, it's great, but you have to build up. Like you said, it doesn't, it's not easy. It only comes with practice. Right? And so if you just, if one shop is, you know what? This is a real bad deadline. I really have to do this. All right, I'll do it. And the next shop says, oh, you know, I'm just going to check the, the, the iPhone once. And the next shop is, all right, did a shop. The next shop, if you don't actually do it, it doesn't build up that reserve in you so that when you're not in shul, right, so that when you're on your own on vacation, you don't have that Shabbos in your head. It's having, and that's where you want to get to. Having that Shabbos in your head, you see the lights coming down on Friday night. People have been in, people have been in Jerusalem on Erev Shabbat on Friday. When you're in Jerusalem on Friday, you can feel Shabbos, right? The whole city is doing Shabbos. But that's not every place. That's because the whole city is doing Shabbos. What you want to get to is when you're in the middle of nowhere or you're in a place where nobody else is doing Shabbos and it's Friday afternoon and you feel Shabbos coming on. And that only comes from practicing slowly and then more not doing. Right? So then you know, oh my God, I have a conference this Shabbos. I can't not go to the conference. How do I do Shabbos and do the conference? Right? How do I do Shabbos and go to the march? And so you could be in Shabbos. If you have that map in your head, you could be in Shabbos while everybody else is not. Because I'm not going to walk here. I remember this story my, my, my partner, Andrew, likes to tell. Our first date was at a, uh, an abortion clinic defense. So we had an abortion clinic defense, and then I made lunch. And then I'll tell you about lunch, funny story about lunch also. But we walked... So we walked. So we lived in Boston. We lived in, in Somerville. We walked from Somerville to Brookline, which is not a, not a small walk, not a short walk. And we stood outside the clinic defending it. And so I would stand. There's no error in Boston. So I would stand and hold a sign. And then they would want me to move to another place. So I put the sign down. 
and I walk over to another place and stand there because I wouldn't carry the sign from one place to another because it's outside. So I was sure that people were not sure whether I was on their side or on the other side. <laughs> but this was, but I was in Shabbos. And it was obvious to me that, this, that it was Shabbos, even though I was doing something that other people were doing, which wasn't Shabbos. Then we went home and I had made a pear pie, which I thought was so great that I made a pear pie and Andrea thought it was an apple pie, so she took a bite of it and she doesn't have a very good poker face and so I've never let her forget that she's a but, but we got married, so it, you know we've been married 22 years, so it's been pretty good. So there you go. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.